Welcome to this week's Thug Life edition of Spin Cycle. <laughs> Broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, lands which sovereignty have never been ceded, has never been ceded, if I were to be grammatically correct. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm Jess Lilly and I'm joined by... Uh, Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis. Hey, Charlie. Evening, Jess. <laughs> and editor-in-chief of The Politics, Rachel Withers. What a fun title that is. <laughs> um, I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> uh, thank you for that. You were just like waving your hands in the background. <laughs> my like, microphone was off. Running from mic like, to mic. I turned the wrong microphone on that. My bad. Uh, we're all back in the room now. Coming up, we're going to be chatting this evening with Guardian Australia Courts and Justice reporter Nino Bucci about his remarkable investigation covering the case of a 13-year-old 30, autistic boy who was radicalised online by counter-terrorism police uh, who then charged the child with terrorism crimes relating to their uh, alleged entrapment of him. So there's lots to talk about there. First, the latest um, Committee to Protect Journalist Casualty Figures from Gaza. This week's CPJ figures, as of yesterday, remain unchanged from last week. Small mercies, I suppose, Mm. or um, unverified reports. Uh, They are reporting at least 85 journalists and media workers killed uh, since October the 7th. Um, 78 Palestinian, four Israeli and three Lebanese, 16 journalists reported injured and and four reported missing, 25 have been reported arrested. Um, Last week we had so much to talk about that we didn't even get to cover the ABC's new series or currently evolving series Nemesis, which uh, is a three-parter that dissects the LNP revolving leadership during their most recent years in power. It's a bloodbath. Um, The Abbott and Turnbull eps have already aired with Morrison still to come. Oh, joy. Um, I haven't watched it, so I am... Because you're a well-adjusted human being. (laughs) I just couldn't... Better things to do with your evenings. I could not bring myself to watch it. Um, So uh, Rachel and Charlie I'm in your hands to – you've both seen them, seen the last two. Give us a little bit of a outline of sort of how the series approaches those years in leadership and, um, and how the first two episodes have gone down. Yeah, well, I mean, if you remember the killing season, which was the equivalent that was made, you know, nine years back for the – Rudd Gillard Rudd uh, <laughs> government. Right, yeah. um, uh, yes. This is that, but for the uh, – Abbott, Abbott Turnbull, Turnbull Morrison, Morrison yes, era. Yeah. So they, it's actually divided up into like the first episode was just on the Abbott years. And that was the one I was watching really quite closely because I remember the Morrison years more than I would like to, <laughs> to be honest. Um, the Turnbull years are still the like mo- fairly fresh as well. But the Abbott years, the first episode was just like bonkers event after bonkers event. Mm. You forgot how many ludicrous things happened in what like two years under two years yeah yeah less than two years and uh, just under two years and I, I mean also it's probably worth mentioning that they've been doing these kind of retrospective government uh rundowns 
for every government since I think the early 90s. The airing of grievances. Yeah, this, yeah. This series and was... This is the first time that um, Abbott, Abbott is the first Prime Minister to ever refuse to be part of it at all. Mm. Yes, so Turnbull has been interviewed for, that, for his episode mm. and Morrison, who hates the limelight, <laughs> has dragged himself mm. out to... Um, oh, I'd say it's, it's Turnbull who's really loving the limelight here. Oh, like, he, he lo- just I mean, he loves hates the limelight to too. to, you know, but, drop, like, sort of his... his t- Turnbullian turns of phrase. I think yeah, we yeah. can say. I mean, it's. I mean, I think you know. Well, uh, they're addictive, aren't they? Because they have quickly um, sort of gone out into the mainstream media this week. Oh, the, I mean, hence uh, the thug life um, introduction. <laughs> well, that yeah, was, he called um, Dutton a thug. Well, they he? often ask him to give one word to describe. Well, they, they ask everyone that they've interviewed y- yeah. to give a one word assessment of Abbott, Morrison, and Turnbull. Yeah. Um, and Turnbull's assessment of. I liked the Abbott ones were good because it was like, you know, like, you know, most of them were very negative, but then someone like Erica Betts would come on the screen and say, ah, personable. <laughs> Energetic. Or authentic. I oh, yeah. one came Persuasive. I really, one of my favourite little recurring things, and I've been keeping on it, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the third episode to see if he does this again. Barnaby Joyce, every time he's asked for a one-word assessment Aww. of a politician, he does a sentence. <laughs> so he's like, so it's like one word to describe Tim, Malcolm Turnbull. Smooth as silk, but be careful. So that's six <laughs> words, dude. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, Nabbit was pugilist, but give you a hug. <laughs> again, that's a lot more than one word. Have, the, is the series based on, you know, like a book, for example? I remember, you know, um, Nikki Sava. Is, is, who else is in it? Like, is it, a, is it the politician? Politicians only, or is it yeah, journalists? It's, or it's only politicians. And it's, it's only, and, and this is again I, from this is the same, the mirroring of the format of of the killing season. It is only politicians who were in government during that time. So there's no opposition it's figures, and there's horrible. no there's no commentary either. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. told just through interviews. I think that bit might be new. Is that the, the whole episode is just politicians speaking? You know, there's a lot of, of footage, and and you get clips of old interviews, and mm. and there's um, there are some like kind of scrolls of text, but there's no voiceover saying mm. and. And then this happened. Kind mm. of thing, Are there any genuine insights, or does it just feel like people no. once again <laughs> just taking an opportunity to massage their reputation? There's nothing. There's nothing that was you'd call properly revelatory. I mean, I think I. I mean, again, this is. <laughs> probably reflects badly on me but i find these things interesting even to the extent that they're not revelatory i think it's interesting seeing how these people justify the time that they kind of in some cases wasted horribly Um, (laughs) and um and i think also it's there's a few things i mean i think it's like watching it really surprised me that morrison was involved and that abbott wasn't particularly watching Morrison be interviewed, and maybe he'll be different when he's talking about his own time in power. But I thought, you know, if a figure like Rudd or a figure like Turnbull, you get the feeling that they are mid-soliloquy about their time in government (laughs) and all those forces that get arraigned against them and then the camera just gets turned on and they keep talking. Um, (laughs) Just always talking about it. Just sit them down Yeah, they're always just... Yeah, yeah. Um, And I can imagine someone like Julie Gillard, again, wanting to kind of get their story out. Various figures of that kind... The fact that um, Morrison, and I don't know if you found this too, Rachel, is every bit as sort of um, disingenuous and curt and um, clearly dishonest about his time in Parliament... And, well, and completely like, abnegating any kind of responsibility for anything that happened during the term of government, absolutely. for example. I'm, I, I think thought, why would you bother? Why, yeah. why would you bother turning up if that's just all you're going to do is mm. say the same stuff you said when you were in office? I mean, it's so well established now 
if you follow politics closely, that he ended up Prime Minister because he implied sort of he played both sides in the the downfall yeah, yeah. of of Turnbull, which was Dutton trying to get it. Mm. Um, he sort of like played off both sides against each other, got his people to vote a certain way, so it looked, mm. you know. It, it, it's shocking that he still denies that stuff yeah. when everybody else who is being interviewed alongside him says, "Yeah, that's what happened." <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that's the, that's the interesting. And I, I suppose, and to be to be fair on Morrison here a little bit, again, if you if you contrast it with the killing season, again, both um, Gillard and Rudd are both baffled that they became prime minister when they did <laughs> like they apparently you know they weren't they weren't seeking any of this sort of stuff out it just was foisted on them but it's it's much much less it's much more opaque in the case of morrison's account of his time his his, mm. his journey to that office and that's that's really interesting I think. is is there any sort of um conjecture on why abbott didn't participate no not really no, actually, not really. Um, I think he's just... I actually think that's the most sensible thing he's ever done. I don't know why <laughs> they partake in these things. Mm. Um, I mean, it, I mean they're, I suppose, they're just so narcissistic yeah. that they think that they're coming off well by participating, whereas I actually think Abbott's sort of dignified silence is serving him quite well. <laughs> well, I mean, I think also there's the sense um, up until now that everyone has thought, well, if I don't go on, the narrative will be sculpted in my absence and I won't mm. be able to, mm. to defend myself. And I can imagine that's, that would be something that both, for example, Rudd and Gillard would definitely not want to let the other one yeah. have the entire time to kind of sculpt that. Yeah. Um, and I think if it had, and I think if it had happened one a few on years one. ago, mm. I think Abbott has now really drifted into a much, a much more openly kind of post-truth, far-right thing in terms of his, like, endorsement of what's going on in Hungary and his, like, mm. I never believed in climate change sort of stuff. He's really let his freak flag fly in that kind of regard. Do you know? I've, I think a couple of years ago he would have been like, no, I want to be part of this. I think it's important that this government story is told properly. No, I mean, I was actually quite... The one not, thing not. that I was really taken aback by in the Abbott episode was learning, relearning how kind of how, like, the fear he was whipping up at the time. And, of course, like, oh, that's around, part of... Oh, um, terrorism. Yeah, and, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah, yeah. the fact that he appeared, like, ready to, to take us to, like... It was also to, to the Russia thing. Russia, and yeah. like, we all mm. laugh about shirt-fronting Putin now, like, all his dumb little turns of phrase. But yeah. it, it was a little alarming. It was like, ooh, are we on the brink of something? I'm I mean, not I sure. think the, the, the strong implication I think we have is that someone would have said in his ear, if he thought for a second that we were at all a military power on the scale of Russia, that someone would have stopped him doing that. And I think that's kind of what seems to have but, happened. Well, that's, that, that was Turnbull's justification for why he had to step in when yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One little little tweet about Nemesis mm-hmm. that I just want to share that was my favourite thing this week. Joe Hockey, uh, Abbott's treasurer oh God, yeah. of, of the infamous Abbott budget, um, also didn't partake. And he tweeted this week, to be clear, I was asked multiple times to go on Nemesis. I refused all requests from multiple sources. As I said in my valedictory speech, I care too much about Australia to be bitter and twisted no matter how much justification I may have for those emotions. <laughs> so Joe Hockey is not bitter and twisted. He just he, wants you to know. He really wants to know if he's doing great. Do not put in the newspaper that Joe Hockey is bitter and twisted. <laughs> Did they talk at all about, like, Peter Credlin's influence on... Oh, yes, yeah, that was a yeah. good part yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, she, was, she also wasn't involved. Yeah, um, she chose not to be. Um, she, she was asked, from what oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, surely she wouldn't give oh, her she wrote, time to she, anything to made the by the ABC. ABC. Yeah, yeah, and she wrote a long piece talking about uh, how she was... You know the worst treated 
I mean, I think I, I think that that it is worth acknowledging that in some ways she was very, very badly treated. There's that line, you know, if she'd been P E T E R instead of P E T A, yeah, would yeah, have been different. Yeah, I think a... I think we can we can safely say there was some very sexist coverage of Peter Cranlon, but also mm-hmm. some very fair coverage and fair scrutiny of how much influence she had over that government. Mm. Um, well, uh, I won't be watching this week's episode um, with Scott Morrison. I think I'd rather um, tarnish <laughs> my eyeballs with bleach. I'd rather drink a bottle of <laughs> <here to> sand. <laughs> um, At the same time, but both I'm 100% of those things. watching. I cannot wait. <laughs> I look forward to um, I, I look forward to your guys' uh, notes in the WhatsApp chat that w- that we now given given the state of WhatsApp conversations in this country now we are going to have to put that on auto delete every 24 hours. By the way, Triple R on. Every- FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Nino Bucci is Guardian Australia's courts and justice reporter. Before this gig, he worked at investigations at the ABC following seven years as a crime reporter at The Age. He joins us now to talk through an extraordinary investigation into a case that has recently come to light via his reporting, after being thrown out of court in October last year involving a 13-year-old autistic boy uh, who also has a a low IQ, whose parents shared their concerns with police about his fixation with Islamic State. What the police did next is as troubling as it is breathtaking. To tell us more, we are welcoming Nino to Spin Cycle. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Very well. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, can you t- give the listeners um, a bit of uh, give your give them your crib notes uh, version of this story? Huh, yes, it's um, it's kind of hard to compact down too much, but yeah, basically, you know, everything you said in the intro is right. Um, I guess I would sort of just add that the boys' school contacted the police as well just before the parents, and so there were mm. you know the authorities were kind of aware of some of the things that that he was doing that were a little bit troubling to that school. It was actually his primary school um, just before wow. his parents also went to police. And, you know, the, the police, it, it, they literally walked into a local police station and kind of said, hey, we've got concerns about what our son's doing, some of the stuff that he's really, you know, interested in or fixated on. You know, he's got severe autism, um, a fairly low IQ, you and a mild intellectual disability but look we're concerned about it and he you know a magistrate later found that he um his father actually said to the police you know words to the effect of we're willing to sacrifice our son for the australian community Hmm. and um for a few months kind of after that basically what happened is police went down what was called by the magistrate a therapeutic path so they were basically trying to work with this kid to kind of challenge some of the troubling ideas he had, um, I guess give him some psychological support, connect him with an imam who could talk to him about Islam and about, I guess, the realities of the religion that are, you know, far removed from the sort of ideology that Islamic State kind of pushed. Then not long after that, and, you know, police sort of argued this was something that was running parallel to the therapeutic sort of part of their, their work, they actually started an undercover operation and the way that was going to work was that one undercover operative would sort of run two different online persona. One of them would be, you know, a 24-year-old man from New South Wales and the other would be 
this even more extreme guy who was overseas, and they were basically going to communicate with this, this boy online, talk about, you know, what was going on, and, you know, over the next sort of few months, they kept going, kept going, kept going, and eventually this kid was charged with two terror offences. He was 14 at that point, at the point he was charged, which we may come back to later as, a, mm-hmm. as another sort of point of contention. Um, and, yeah, basically... That um, that was two years ago, uh, almost. Sorry, two and a bit years ago. That was sort of spring 2021. Kind of wound its way through the courts for the next two years, and then yes, as you as you sort of mentioned, in October last year, he was granted a permanent stay on the charges. This basically means that you know a magistrate in the children's court said there's no case to, to answer here. You know, let this kid go. So. Yeah, fairly extraordinary sort of set of circumstances, to put it mildly. During that time, he did spend three months in custody. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he he was granted bail fairly soon after he was charged. You know, which is not uncommon when you know the accused fourteen, even though the, the charges are quite sort of serious. There was then a breach of bail a few months later. Um, there's sort of various things alleged there, but they weren't criminal offences he committed while you're on bail. You know, he had really strict mm. bail conditions and, and the alleged breaches are related to some internet stuff he was doing, yeah. searches he was mm. doing and, and things like that. And then he then spent three months in, in custody after that before he was granted bail again and was fairly, you know, as far as we can tell, compliant with that up until the point that he was, yeah, um, granted that permanent stay. So, yeah, three months in custody um, over that sort of two-year period. But, um, yeah, obviously any time you've got charges that serious hanging over your head um, when, you're a, when you're a fairly young child um, or, you know, young teenager, it, you can't imagine what that would have been like for him mm-hmm. and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, Nino, it's Rachel here. I was wondering, I mean, such an awful, awful story I was wondering when you first came across it, and you know how long have you have you been following his his case? Yeah, so I guess anyone who is in journalism and talks to lawyers a lot mm. will know that they, they like to, to talk about things that there's a big <laughs> yeah. between you know cases they might mm. mention to you that are really interesting and um, actually getting that to a finished mm. finished article. So I I probably first heard about it early last year mm. um, and thought it sounded very compelling but was also sort of told that, look, <laughs> even then I suppose people that were connected to the case had a reasonable idea or hope, I guess, that it was going to end as it did in October last year, mm. that there was going to be a permanent stay on it. So, you know, I kind of sat tight on it for a little bit and then... Um, Obviously, the decision was made in October last year, but for reasons that aren't completely clear to me or to people I've sort of spoken to, that decision itself wasn't published online mm. for many months until yeah, last week when um, when I sort of got word from from somebody that, hey, it's just popped up online, you might want to, you know, take a look. Mm. Um, and, and I did, and, and you know, it, it, was, it was published online in a quite an obscure sort of, um, mm. You know, basically when the Children's Court publishes decisions, but there's not many decisions there and it's sort of select decisions. So 
Mm. Um, yeah, I decided I should sort of try and get it out fairly quickly after that point. But, <laughs> but yeah, they're really difficult matters to follow in the children's yeah. court. Mm. And when you kind of add that layer of national security as well, mm. um, I wasn't surprised that it wasn't something that people were watching very closely, but I was glad we were able to, to get something up and, and, and out there because, you know, there's sort of broader, you know, there's fairly... There's issues beyond what happened in this case, mm, I guess. Of course. I, work sort of I mean, there's massive trust issues mm. with the police and also potential abuse of power and all that sort of stuff. I'm interested just to clarify a couple of things, you know, because obviously the response to this has been pretty pretty outraged and we'll talk about where how far it's gone in terms of the review and, and um, questions in Senate. But just to clarify, the two charges... Um, I just want to clarify two things. The two charges, did they stem from simply from the um, from evidence elicited by police during those online conversations? And what is the relevance of him being charged after he turned 14? There was a suggestion that they almost were waiting for him to turn 14 before these charges arose. Can you just clarify that? Yeah. So it was alleged that there was a, a, a period where he wasn't communicating with that covert operative where he had committed part of one of the offences. So that's, that's a little bit tricky to kind of wrap your head around. But basically the two charges were alleged membership of a terrorist organisation and allegedly advocating terrorism. Um, so they were the two charges. There was a suggestion that, that some, of the conduct, some of the conduct that made up those charges had occurred before the undercover operation um and certainly a lot of the alleged offending well all the alleged offending began when he was 13 um but what the magistrate actually found in granting that permanent stay application was that the officers involved in in sort of monitoring and 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 that undercover operation had deliberately waited until he was 14 to charge him with criminal offenses Mm. because then it would be less difficult for them to to have him prosecuted, basically because of a somewhat complicated legal concept which is um, called Dolly Incapax, which is basically there's a presumption if you're 13 or between 10 and 13 um, because obviously the, the age of, um, of yeah, criminality in, in varies by state to state, but Victoria it's still 10 at the moment. Um, but between 10 and 13, there's a presumption of dolly incapacity. And what that means is that the prosecution basically has to prove that or has to rebut that presumption. So they have mm-hmm. to prove that you did have the mental capacity effectively to know that what you're doing was mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very shorthand. But, you know, basically... So, look, the magistrate in granting that permanence, they said, you know, she found that the AFP had deliberately waited until this boy was 14 because it would have been harder for them to get the prosecution up if he was 13 when he was charged, um, which is quite an extraordinary finding mm. because, you know, obviously it's sort of suggesting they um, wanted to go as hard as possible against this kid. I mean, they they dispute that, you know, in, in their evidence. Um, at one point, she, the, the magistrate who made the decision, decision Leslie Fleming, described that evidence as nonsense, Um yeah, so I guess it's fair to say that's disputed, but certainly the finding of the court was that's what the AFP did. 
And, you know, it's Charlie here. Thank you um, so much for joining us, and, and congratulations on the piece. It's really, really good. Um, this this obviously covers, as you kind of hinted at, this covers um, kind of some of the more clandestine eras, I guess, of law enforcement in terms of national security and those kind of issues. I was wondering if you could talk us through some of the... Um, I guess I've got two parts to my question. One, did you come to any feeling about what has to change to prevent things like this happening in the future? And then I guess following on from that, what are some of the... Um, the challenges that you would face as a journalist trying to monitor whether those changes actually take place? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's important to sort of state that, you know, just in a, as a general concept, it is possible for children of this age to be radicalised mm. and to, you know, commit fairly horrendous acts. I mean, the, the person who killed Curtis Chang, a New South Wales police employee, um, you know, almost a decade ago now, but but he was a 15-year-old boy. You know, we, we shouldn't sort of think that it's impossible that teenagers of this age are capable of, um, you know, being radicalised and committing, you know, violent crime. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just as a starting point, right? Not to yeah. in any way justify what's happened in this case, but to sort of say that I think it would be naive to kind of say, you know, we can... Um, it's not outside the realms of possibility. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, or that, you know, there should be just some blanket rule of, of investigating anybody who's under a certain age. I mean, I completely understand raising the age arguments and things like that, but let's let's also leave that out because that probably <laughs> yeah, yeah. overcomplicates this. I, th- I think there's two main things that um, I think this case raises as a concern that I've seen in other and other matters as well, but that I think are particularly acute here. One of those is around the intersection of a law enforcement and, I guess, intelligence response with a, a rehabilitative and um, therapeutic response. And and the reason that's problematic is because there there's a really important role to play here uh, for, you know, experts in countering violent extremism, um, you know, psychologists, you know, youth workers, I guess, in, in the case of, of kids like this, you know, even down to, you know, school councils and things like that. But where a lot of it falls down, I think, in terms of its effectiveness, is that these people a lot of the time are also feeding information back to police and back to intelligence that assist in a criminal and a right, sort of, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I suppose a, a, a prosecutorial kind of response. Um, I, I, like, that's a complex problem, but it, it certainly has come up in this kid's case and, mm. you know, certainly the magistrate found in that in that decision that, you know, the therapeutic efforts that were, you know, that were being undertaken to kind of support this kid were being directly undermined by what was going on with the undercover operatives. Um, you know, again, this is an extreme case, but I do think there's elements of that happening in a lot of counterterrorism cases that I've seen, um, and that you know that's a particularly enormous problem when you're talking about you know a young kid. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the, sorry, uh, I was just going to say, Nino, in your piece, you did say that one of the psychologists. Um, um, who assessed the child um, and, um, you know, he, he was found to have quite severe um, 
uh, ASD and also obviously intellectual autism and intellectual disability um, said yeah. that those that those things made him prone to fixations which um, weren't necessarily were, were were potentially more fantastical and part of an interior fantasy life rather than anything he'd act upon. Were the police not then beholden to take that evidence into account? It just seems like the undercover operation actually you sort of fueled that because the 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 communication was quite regular and consistent, weren't they? They kept drawing him in. Mm, yeah. Look, certainly the magistrate found that that that's effectively what happened. That you know the undercover operation made his behaviour worse, his fixation worse, it, it escalated what he was saying and, and, and his level of planning, um, you know, and, and yes, again, to kind of go to that level, you know, the, the amount that they were communicating, I think it was, you know, 50-something days out of 70 days he was communicating with this mm. undercover operative, sure. including multiple times a day, you know, breaks in school and things like that. And by the time it was over, there was 1,400 pages of sort of chat logs between him and, and this undercover operative. So, you know, it, it's also noted in other court documents I've seen. I'm, I'm not, I don't, it didn't kind of find its way into the into the main piece I wrote. But you know, this this kid was very isolated, not many friends, mm. and all of a sudden he's got these, you know, two people online who are actually. Just one undercover operative who are seemingly available, you know, most times of day, are keen to speak to him about, you know, something he's fixated on and really interested in. And so, you know, you can certainly see how that would have been something that would, um, that would, yeah, increase his risk. And I, I guess just something that would, um, yeah, completely increase that fixation and, and something that, it's very hard to unwind if he's mm-hmm. then, you know, if he's talking to this person multiple times a day, most days, and then he's got a once weekly meeting with a psychologist. I'm, I'm picking that out of thin <laughs> air, but just to kind of illustrate the yeah. point here, mm-hmm. you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot more work going into the yeah. sort of let's build up a rapport with this guy yeah. and, and see what he sort of um, admits to online under a false, mm. under false kind of pretenses than there are into actually addressing some of the root causes of. Yeah. of of the behaviour. I mean, um, it is just so yeah. devastating, especially reading, you know, that the parents sought help from the police mm. and, and sort of, yeah, we're, we're trying to just de-radicalise him. I was wondering, yeah. you know, obviously your story has prompted a lot of outrage and shock um, because, you know, to do this to a, a 13-year-old boy with, with autism and, and, you know, fixations um, is so shocking and upsetting and, it, and it's clear they, they have probably screwed his life up quite badly. Mm. But I was wondering, you know, is this kind of leading, um, you know, in investigations where they actually lead people who are not 13 and who do not have autism or fixations, um, is that like considered just, a legitimate, just, legitimate. Do they get away with tactic. that all the time in, in <laughs> counterterrorism investigations? Well, the, this is going to be the second part of my answer to Charlie's question before, which is that I think there's been some real concerns for quite a while mm. now about how undercover operations work in this country, and um, I guess yeah, the level of, of what is called in other jurisdictions. Entrapment, you know. Mm. Certainly, you know, lawyers I speak to who feel that there's people who have been prosecuted here, and um, you know, I've either 
I've either sort of pled up, you know, pled guilty to sort of get, you know, the, the lower sentences they can because of the the evidence against them or have been sort of found guilty, you know, after trial that, you know, perhaps they wouldn't have been able to be prosecuted at all if it was, you know, in another country, like even the US, mm. um, because of, I guess, the length that the AFP particularly are, are able to kind of go to mm. to, um, to do these kind of undercover operations. There's, there's been a couple of, yeah, a couple of cases that didn't involve kids where that's been raised, I suppose, a little bit more acutely. There was a, the ABC did a great story, actually, um, background briefing a, a couple of years back about mm. a, a guy that was um, a conspiracy to commit yeah. offence, I believe. Yeah, Mahmoud Fazal did that very report, almost, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's very sort of thought crimey almost, mm. you know. Um, and when you're, when the basis of that is, you know, conversations with somebody who's, you know, pretending to be your friend and a fellow radical and, um, you know, a fellow believer. I mean, we've all slightly exaggerated things to people we're trying to impress. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's part of a social norm. You know, that's like a normal social behaviour. It's like, you're saying some really kooky shit, but I'm going to go along with it right now because we're having a friendly conversation. Yeah. Um, we've got a, a listener has asked, texted in a question, Nino, um, is discipline action happening against the police involved? Not that we know of is probably the best mm. way to answer that. And, and look, to be frank... I'd be really surprised if there was. Mm. Uh, I guess, you know, that's kind of a, a, a bit of a general sort of comment about the lack of accountability there is for, for law enforcement across the country, but also I, we just don't get a sense from, from the AFP who haven't responded to my request for comment this Shocking. week, um, <laughs> and nor, nor has the Attorney-General's department um, Interesting. Sorry, the Attorney General himself responded, and, and obviously, you know, Mark Drake, the Attorney General, it's the AFP, uh, they're in his portfolio. He, they haven't responded either. But, you know, Ian McCartney, the Deputy Commissioner who actually authorised um, what's known as a major controlled operation, so basically the operation that resulted in this kid being charged, he appeared before you know, a Senate committee hearing this week, and he did say there was a range of reviews going on at the AFP into this case. So, you know, it is possible that that as part of that there are going to be individuals that are that are disciplined within within the AFP or and I should say this was a joint counterterrorism task force, you know, investigation. So it's the AFP, it's Victoria Police and it is ASIO, but most of the most of the comments in the magistrate's permanent stay um, decision, most of the comments were that were that were critical were critical of of the AFP and and of, and their and the operative was from the AFP, so I'm sort of using the AFP shorthand a little here mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. the whole JCTT. But yeah, certainly we don't have any indication at all that there's going to be anyone um, held accountable specifically for, for their role in this. And, and on the other side of that, do you have any sense of how uh, the, the kid is known, obviously, under the pseudonym Thomas Carrick? Um, do you have any sense of how he and his family are? Is, has any of that kind of come out in the aftermath of this? I haven't personally spoken to him or his or his family. Uh, I have spoken to his lawyer or one of his lawyers, and you know they. I think they've been somewhat heartened by the fact that this is now um, in the open. But mm-hmm. you know they're also 
incredibly troubled by the past couple of years and um, feel pretty badly sort of let down by by the whole system. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I know very little about their background. You know, again, sort of touch on something I mentioned earlier about the challenges of reporting on the children's court and and um, national security. You know, that we can't sort of say anything that would tend to identify them. Sure, um, absolutely. But yeah. you know, it, the magistrate does sort of mention that you know English was their second language, mm. uh, and you know, sort of in describing that, you know that attempt to kind of go to the local police station and, and seek help. They, they make, the magistrate makes mention of that and, and you do, um, you do sort of, yeah, I felt reading that and, and reading, um, you know, what I did about the family, though, it doesn't go into a heap of, a heap of detail that they were very genuinely trying to do the right thing and from their perspective, what sort of followed from that must have been completely unimaginable yeah absolutely. Yeah. um since your f- initial story came out um there has been uh, a senate um appearance <laughs> where um the op were, was it the op asked to answer questions um wh- mm. what was yeah. the involve what was the result of that yeah so basically they were up on on monday morning uh as part of a, a committee hearing it was it was only a, a fairly short hearing um but the the commissioner commissioner reese kershaw was there and the deputy commissioner in mccartney who as i mentioned authorized that the operation he was there as well as as a few other um afp members and and staff and yeah basically senator david shoebridge from the greens sort of picked up the story from the weekend and and asked them you know similar to your reader actually sorry the listener um asked about you know, whether anyone was going to be held accountable for this. And they basically said no. Um, well, they didn't say no. They said there was range of reviews underway. Uh, they also sort of, you know, Senator Shoebridge was really, I suppose, going at them fairly mm. um, virally. There's, there's video of that that you can, you can kind of see that the Guardian sort of put out and you'll, you'll find elsewhere, including on his Twitter. But, you know, he was going at them pretty hard about the fact that they nobody had been held accountable and that the, you know, the magistrate had basically found that they'd, that the AFP had further radicalised this, this mm. kid. Um, to which, you know, yeah, yeah. And I look, the AFP said that they accept the magistrate's finding. Um, they also said that that wasn't there. And when I say they, this is Deputy Commissioner McCartney making these comments, said that, you know, he accepted, um, he accepted the magistrate's finding, but that, and it wasn't there, you know, wasn't their intent or their sort of purpose to to further radicalise this kid, and also sort of said that he was, you know, well down the path of radicalisation before this happened, and that there had been a um, a spike in children of this age sort of becoming radicalised. I guess so. You know, they're going to be before the Senate again next week, uh, is my understanding, and um, before an estimates hearing. So it'll be interesting to see whether. It, kind of comes up again um, yeah. and, and, you know, what they sort of say about it. I mean, look, I, you know, for what it's worth and um, we'll have to wait and see whether this, you know, comes to bear. But I think it's I think it's possible that while they, while they accept the magistrate's finding and, you know, they, they, they could have appealed it, they didn't, um, uh, they, they may not accept some of um, what she, I suppose, emphasised and um, some of the weight she put in matters 
and obviously, you know, it's a written decision of 20-something pages. You know, she may not have mentioned pieces of evidence that they consider fairly key, for example, uh, and, and therefore, you know, when I've sort of picked up and ran with it, they might find that there's part, they, they might feel that there's parts of that that are inaccurate, that they, or maybe not inaccurate, but that they, um, the emphasis is not in the right spot. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if at estimates they have um, a little more mm. prepared in terms of um, defending their conduct in that in that matter. Mm. Um, Adele Salmon, for the president of the Islamic Council of Victoria, you've reported has um, called for a public inquiry to be held into the case. Do you think that will happen? I'd like to think it would. Uh, I'd like to think it would politically, um, you know, and... and Senator Shubridge hasn't said this to me, but I'm sure this is how he feels. It's kind of an an interesting spot federally at the moment because, you know, it's unlikely the coalition are are going to sort of ask for more accountability from law enforcement and, you know, it doesn't necessarily look good for the the government to do it either, given, you know, they're the government so they could just do what they needed to. And it probably hasn't quite, you know, as much as, as I think it's a particularly troubling case and that, that it probably points to broader issues, uh, it's probably not quite something yet that mm. they feel there's a real public interest in sort of putting their neck out on. Um, wow. I think there should be a, I mm. think there should be an inquiry into it. I think that there's there's stuff here that's systematic and that, you know, involves um, I guess methodologies and um, there's, there's stuff that, you know, Adele and I have spoken for a long time about his concerns about the way that the Islamic community is targeted mm. and stuff that he's heard from people who, um, you know, over... You know, we're talking about two decades since, you know, September 11. So it's it's not something that that is new to that community, but it's something that, um, you know, in this particular instance... I feel there's enough serious questions there that an inquiry would be really beneficial, at least having some of those issues thrashed out a little bit more thoroughly. And, I mean, the fascinating thing here, again, without sort of going off too much of a tangent, but in the past couple of years it's it's become really clear here that, you know, counterterrorism and, and particularly sort of Islamic extremism isn't the big sort of main focus that it was mm. anymore for our yeah. intelligence agencies and, and our sort of, you know, criminal justice agencies, that's, you know, foreign interference and increasingly, you know, right-wing extremism if they are sort of talking about extremism. So it could be a good, you know, way as well, I guess, to kind of have a bit of a think about the amount of resources we're putting into that. And, you know, deeply cynical thing for me to say, but, you know, I'd I'd love to know how much this all costs. And I feel that if that was something that people could also sort of Mm. point a finger at and say, well, hang on a minute, why did we, you know... Spend all that well, money going after a 13 year old kid. That's yeah. right. Mm. Exactly. You know, that might actually be something that resonates more with them than, you know, yeah. the fact that it's happened to a 13 year old kid. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nino, thank you so much for your time. We've been chatting to Nino Bucci, Justice and Courts reporter for The Guardian, and you can um, read that report on The Guardian Australian website with uh, all the follow-up stories, and I'm sure there's more of that to come after the Senate Estimates hearing next week. Thank you so much, Nino. No worries. Thanks, you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. See ya. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app.
um, to to the listener who texted in that Triple I used to be fun and musical and bring joy, and now it's just depressing, endlessly depressing current affairs. Listen, buddy, I hear you. That that was a depressing story, but I am glad that we are aware um, of of the uh, of the fact that um, the police are behaving like that, mm. and I'm grateful that um, that journalists like Nino are bringing us those stories. I mean, to turn to a more fun topic. Uh oh. <laughs> I mean, that is not how I describe uh, it. However, <laughs> yeah, slightly, more fun, slightly yeah. more fun. Um, we're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the coverage this week around what I would say is the biggest story in Canberra uh, and has been for a couple of weeks now, which is the labour changes to the stage three tax cuts to make them much more equitable than they were before. Uh, everybody gets a tax cut. Some people get a slightly, slightly smaller tax cut, um, but everyone gets a tax cut now. Um, and what we saw this week was um, the opposition who have been crying broken promise and, mm. and backed mm-hmm. up very much so by the with, Murdoch with the, media. I was about to say, with the, with the very strong support of a lot of, well, the, a lot of the media. Of, yeah, pretty much every media outlet, I would say. You know, but when Albanese made the announcement, all the questions at the press club were like, what about your word is your word still your bond um what about your integrity how will your integrity recover um look on sunday sunday's news poll came out late um and we learned that actually this was broadly popular and and voters were willing Mm. to overlook a broken broken promise if it was the right thing to do uh and seems that the coalition have also seen that that might be (laughs) where public sentiment Mm. is going and that maybe they can't stand against tax cuts for low and middle income earners. Listen, I've got to say, I'd never thought I'd say I feel feel sorry for Susan (laughs) Lay as a sentence out out in the open. I don't, I genuinely don't necessarily feel sorry for her. I I don't feel anything for her. But um, she was definitely rolled out to really go hard in the media about the broken promises. And boy, did she go hard. I mean, some of the things she said were just like, it was like soap operatic levels of deception. Do you know what? But, I'll, and then it, I'll agree and then, that, that I will actually feel sorry for her too because there was a bit of conjecture over whether she actually said that they would roll them back. It was like one of the very first interviews right. where she implied they would roll them back. If you actually listen to it, like it's not quite sh- clear whether sh- she's saying that's still our policy or we'll roll them back. But anyway, Labor very sent much out made as, it as the attack dog, though, and yeah. then for without a line, without a clear line, without a clear line, just a full attack. And then we haven't heard from her at all since since mm. um, the opposition <laughs> rolled rolled over on it. So you know, it I mean, that's po- that's such an example of the brutality oh, of yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like how hard would it be to then just stride down the halls of parliament and and mm. show your face again as though nothing has happened. I mean, they you know, do you'd it. You have to have such a they, strong. They do it every day. Hide, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. what I think, um, where I think this took a bit of a turn last night is obviously all week we've seen Labor gloating a little bit about the coalitions rolling over, um, and you know I think a couple of people in the media, myself included, have pointed out that. The coalition can't continue to attack Labor for breaking their promise while also voting for their breaking of a promise. Mm. So they've decided they're going to wave through the changes that they do not want to be seen to be opposing tax cuts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're, they're trying to have their tax cuts and eat them too. You know, they want <laughs> they want to punish Labor for this but also themselves get credit for it. And then last night we, ha- we saw opposition leader Peter Dutton go on 730 Sarah Ferguson and face real questions for the first time all week, I would say, about his position. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she was asking things like, 
you know, do you accept that this is the correct policy if you're voting for it? Um, and as he does, he just continually, you know, deflected the questions um, to what he wanted to talk about, which is how bad Labor is. But every time he also threw out a bit of a, like, that's a biased question or that's a Labor question or, like... Accusing you know, Sarah mm. Ferguson of representing Labor's point of view, yeah. Labor's standpoint, or just being a parrot for and, Labor, and it's a very, I mean, for it's, the ALP. And it, it's, it's, over, it's overused a lot as an analogy for, like... hard. Yes, well, that's what I was going to say. That, is that people do use that often when it's not really applicable. It's like anyone who's a hard right figure is now a Trumpian figure, which I think is, like, a bit oversimplistic. But there is something very Trumpian about being like, well, yes, you would say that because you're a Labor operative. Yeah. And he's been doing this for quite a while now. Obviously, mm. when Catherine Murphy went from The Guardian to Albanese's office, um, he used to do a, a very strange, gratuitous swipe at David Crow, mm. the um, national politics editor for the Nine Papers, uh, who is not particularly left-wing. No. Or, you know, he would be a very much fig- thought of as a very centrist figure and, you know, a fairly assiduous journalist. Um, back when he was being asked about the um, completely confected uh, child abuse scandal that he said was happening in the Northern Territory alongside Jacinda Price. He was asked about that and they went, well, you would ask that. You're from the ABC. And it's like, obviously, I don't know how well that's going to play in Australia. I don't think we're quite quite at that stage. It's red meat for the base, isn't it? You know, if if any of his supporters saw him going at uh, Sarah Ferguson, you know, oh, that's a Labour question or, like, how dare you ask me how I'm going to pay for reinstating the scrapping of the 37% tax. You know, he's implied he's going to bring back the other tax cuts on on top of supporting these ones. And and mm. when he's asked basic questions that I think are important, like how will you pay for that, he says, oh, that's Labor's question. Like yeah. Labor's been asking that question. It's like, well, <laughs> it, it, you know, and then implying this, he, he said – Bit of a coincidence that that's yeah, I, he was implying that, that, a conspiracy. Yeah, there's a real, really uh, a loaded term to yeah. that's so the kind of thing that Ralph Babbitt says. He's just he's just trying this. to completely dismiss media that he doesn't agree with or anyone who asks him a hard mm. question because Peter doesn't doesn't spend a lot of time mm. on the ABC or speaking to, let's say, the Guardian. Mm. Um, he he sticks to his safe bubbles of like Ray Hadley and the Australian, which is I, mean, I think that the kind of I guess the the end game of all this is really interesting because ultimately the Liberals don't really, or the coalition doesn't, as far as I can see it, have a very, very obvious path back to government that doesn't involve getting back at least one or two of the teal seats. And I can't imagine those guys who voted in people like Monique Ryan and Kate Cheney would particularly be won over by someone... I could spend a go- whole episode on this, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. It's not It's not clear what he's doing. He's really going down the... the the Sky News path. Yeah, um, and I think that that that's that that well might be empty by now in terms of I mean, how far it can get you. But I, I think the thing is, if he was only himself consuming or, or you know really closely consuming the Murdoch media over the past week, he would have heard, "Look at him! Isn't he clever? He he mm. dodged Albanese's that's true, wedge." That's true. They were just talking about what a master strategist he was so- when everyone else was like. Oh, dude, you've had a bad week. Like that's okay. People have bad weeks, but you've really this is so sad for you. And and I think that was the thing that I was sort of waiting for. I mean, I, this is obviously not what I was really waiting for. But like, were they ascribed uh, what Albanese did as an ambush or as a betrayal or as a liability type thing? I was waiting for the front page that was like Dutton rolls over and betrays mm. his base. Um, that didn't seem. That doesn't seem to be coming though. <laughs> Well, I mean, that would involve admitting that his base is actually the people on high high incomes. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nadge Samble. 
at Lily Juice and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this. <laughs>